Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And we have got a bunch of great NBA talk to get through with you guys today. But we have to start with the breaking news. The biggest story around the association. That being that Bradley Beal has been traded to the Phoenix Suns for Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, a handful of second round picks and a few pick swaps as well. Logan, the Suns continue to make super aggressive moves for stars. Obviously, it was Katie a few months ago. Now it's Bradley Beal. What's your take on this? And what should we expect from Phoenix in terms of contention with this roster? Yeah, Carson, most people really think that the Suns fleeced Washington asset-wise in this one. You know, you just give up Paul Shambit and a few second-round picks and uh, pick swaps. To me, that's not really the case. I think that it's tough, man. It's tough bringing on Bradley Beal. Uh, I think there are legitimate skill set redundancies when you look at this core in terms that KD, Devin Booker, Bradley Beal are all elite off-the-dribble scorers, pull-up shooters, and are all better you know, with the ball in their hands. So I think there's some redundancy there. Uh, I think we've seen some legitimate regression from Bradley Beal where he's not at that star level that he was a few years back, right? We've been having this Beal conversation for about three years now where is he going to get moved? Is this the time? When does this happen? To me, it comes uh, two years late, and uh, I wish that uh, Washington was able to take the Miami Heat deal, apparently reportedly offered Duncan Robinson, Kyle Lowry, and some firsts. But that's kind of the point that I want to get at here. The Suns are now not only handcuffed Carson to a contract that Beal is going to get paid $46 million this year, $50 million the year after that, $53 million the following season, and then he has a player option in 2027 for $57 million. So that's a big kicker, right, that he's getting all of this money. The real kicker here to me, Carson, is now that we've seen him regress a little bit, 
he also still has that no trade clause in Phoenix. Like, if we see Beal continue to drop off or if we see uh, this doesn't work out, this is an unmovable asset. Mm-hmm. This is a Russell Westbrook, you know, caliber of unmovable type of contract. So what I'm saying is if the Suns can't get this thing done, if we are looking at this in 2027 and they don't have a championship ring, this is a complete and utter failure and a, a pretty abysmal trade in terms that you didn't really add a complimentary piece. You added a guy that is unmovable. You spend all this money on all of these stars. That's what makes this difficult. And I think the thing that is really hard is now building a tangible bench around all of these guys. You have five total guys under contract. They are already over uh, the cap limit, Carson, with these five guys. I don't know if they plan to still move DeAndre Ayton or what the deal is, but I don't know. To me, I would have tried to have moved Chris Paul and filled out the roster with more complimentary assets, guys that play defense, guys that shoot the ball well. I don't really think you need more on-the-dribble creation or uh, another ball handler in this offense. I don't really think you need another scorer. To me, this is the equivalent of like the Dallas Mavericks trading for Luka Doncic when you clearly need supporting role pieces. So I don't know, Carson. For me, yes, this is going to be a contending team. You have one of the best duos in all of basketball in Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Now you have a better third star than Chris Paul, but this is not a cure-all for all of the Suns' issues. They still don't have a great bench. And in my opinion, I see this going... uh, a lot worse than better, Carson. I don't really know if this legitimately makes them better. This is still a team that's going to have a horrid, horrid bench. So I don't know, man. I'm conflicted. Yeah, I think Beal is a better player than Chris Paul at this point in their careers, but uh, there's a lot of negatives that come with this trade too, Carson. And I don't really know if it makes them legitimately better as contenders in the West. I do think it makes them better, but it is certainly not a cure-all, instantly elevate them to tier one contender kind of move because there's just too many deficiencies on this roster. And those were exposed in the playoffs and it was not a lack of high-end offensive creation from their stars, the sort of thing that Bradley Beal does bring more of. I do think it's actually good value though because Beal is to me significantly better than CP3. Like, CP3 still has value in terms of controlling a game, but we saw his regression as a shot maker and overall score. His defensive regression has been real. I think he's a guy who could get attacked there in a playoff series. And of course, not that Beal has been the epitome of durability, but Chris Paul at 38 years old, last two postseasons, we've seen him deal with injuries. It's been a theme throughout his career and one that is not going to get any better. And I think There's skill set redundancy with him compared to KD and Book 2. Guys who are going to run a lot of pick and roll. Guys who are not rim pressurers. Who are very reliant on their pull-up jump shooting. Specifically from the mid-range. I think Beal is better all around. I think he's a significantly better off-ball player than Chris Paul actually. And I think it's good value for Beal. Because you're not giving up really a single asset that hurts you. Right? Landry Shamit sucks. (laughs) CP3, you're trading for a significantly better player and cp3 was already on a very bad contract now only two years left not as high a dollar value not fully guaranteed but this is a guy who they were considering waiving who i did not think they would be able to turn into a top 40 nba player regardless of fit in the draft capital you really don't care about you've already thrown away any opportunity to really nail future drafts with the kd trade so you can look at this in terms of 
opportunity cost, like was Beal the wrong guy to go for? But I don't know that that argument really holds water because I think they were only able to execute this trade to begin with because of a number of very favorable conditions working in their favor. That being that Washington is a desperate team to move on from the Beal era. They have a very good player, but one who is a bad contract and therefore is not as valuable as his pure basketball skill would maybe dictate he should be, who does not at all align with their timeline. Like you weren't going to be able to turn Chris Paul into OG Anunoby, right? Beal may be better in a vacuum. OG is a better fit maybe when you're talking about bringing wing defense and off-ball shooting and what have you. But because of the fact that he is younger on a more attractive contract, all these things, he's viewed as a much more positive asset. So I do like the move. I think it makes them a bit better. I still think they're getting lapped by Denver, Milwaukee, Boston in terms of impactful depth guys, in terms of two-way ceiling. And I am concerned that this could be limiting for them long-term when you're still paying Bradley Beal 50 million plus in 2027, maybe just after another year of CP, you could have flipped him as an expiring into something more valuable. Or even this year, maybe just waving him, getting off of some of that cap could open up more doors long-term because they are so incredibly limited in building out a quality roster alongside their star core but they weren't in a good position to add a bunch of quality role guys on really even mid-sized contracts anyways. I do think the fit is an interesting one because I think some people are underrating how good Bradley Beal is off ball. I mean, that was like his entire appeal for the first six years of his career, playing with John Wall, this phenomenal catch and shooter, this very cerebral cutter, this guy who can play within the flow of the offense. And I still think that he has those traits. He's top five in cuts per game as a guard last year, an efficient score there. That's consistently been a pillar of his game, 40% on catch and shoot threes. And I think he's also a very good on-ball creator. His playmaking has developed so much over the last few years. I do not consider him a selfish player. I think he can make some very solid, important NBA passes, one-handed live dribble, reads, pocket passes, skip passes to the corner. And then I think he's just an efficient all-around score. Was quite efficient finishing at the rim this year. Almost 72% in the restricted area, 48% for mid-range, 54% on floaters. The guy is just an all-around bucket. But again, when you look at Phoenix and you ask them, where did you fall short? It wasn't their ability to have guys get buckets out of the mid-range to create their own shot at a high level. It was their overall size deficiency compared to a team like Denver. And I'm not just talking height. I'm talking physicality to strength. And it was their defensive struggles. And it was their depth. It was the fact that they could not rely on anybody outside of their top two guys to consistently produce at a high level, especially once Chris Paul got hurt. And Beal doesn't help them in a lot of those categories. Like, although I do think all three of these stars are very skilled off-ball players. Book, to me, is one of the best off-ball guards in the league. KD does not need to dominate the ball as a phenomenal shooter. But they're all used to creating a lot of offense for themselves. Like, if you look at what percentage of their possessions came out of pick and roll and isolation combined last year, Beal was almost 45%. Book, it was 43%. 
KD was almost 37%. So although they all can play off ball well, it's not the role that they are maximizing their value in. They are on-ball creators, and there is still only so much ball to go around. I think the bigger issue, though, is how similar their strengths as on-ball creators are. Like, none of them are the transcendently great playmaker. None of them are the great downhill rim pressure. These are three of the top eight mid-range scorers in the NBA. Beal was 27th in restricted area field goals made per game last year, actually by far the best of the group. Book was around 75th, KD was around 150th. It's none of their pressure, none of their preference to get downhill, pressure the rim. None of them are physically imposing in that arena, and that's arguably their biggest offensive issue from this postseason run, their susceptibility to fall into those lulls because they couldn't create those high-quality looks at the rim, and that remains unsolved. And offense was really never the problem to begin with. Like, they had an offensive rating of 116 in the playoffs. That was third. It was that Denver hung an offensive rating of 120 on them, and they could not get a stop in meaningful moments. And defensively, Beal is just not adding value there as a 6'3 guy who is slightly a plus athlete at this stage, but just never consistently shown the engagement there. I think best case scenario, you're looking at him being like a within average range defender and a smaller guy who can be attacked in certain matchups. So I just look at their issues. How are they going to reach a high defensive ceiling? Who's going to pressure the rim consistently? Who's going to do the little things? I think is an important question. Who is that gritty impact multifaceted role guy who's even going to play in the bench minutes I think all of those issues to me remain too concerning to where I do not consider them a tier one contender and I really don't think we can overstate the importance of like really good role players because people I'm starting to see throughout the comparison to the 2021 Nets where it's you can stockpile so much offensive talent that you could win the title that team obviously didn't because of injuries to James Harden and Kyrie Irving. But first off, that was a better big three. Like, let's not compare that version of Kyrie Irving, one of the most efficient 28-point-per-game scorers, just incredibly dynamic on-ball and off-ball scoring guards that we've ever seen, to this version of Bradley Beal. I actually think they had less redundant skill sets because of how Harden could command the game as that sort of playmaking first presence. There's nobody like that here in Phoenix. And... They had better role guys. Joe Harris, Bruce Brown, Blake Griffin. You don't see those kind of contributors down this Phoenix roster right now. And by the way, that Brooklyn team still lost because of depth. People point to injuries like that's some sort of total anomaly. Well, Kyrie Irving missing playoff games is not a rarity. Just like Bradley Beal hasn't played more than 50 games in the last couple seasons. The same goes for Kevin Durant. So... Yeah, availability is a legitimate concern and decimating your depth is obviously a factor in that beyond just lacking quality role guys when you are at full strength. But all the title teams in recent years have had great role players, man. The Nuggets with KCP, Bruce Brown, high value contract guys for their third and fourth options, MPJ, Aaron Gordon, the Warriors. I mean, it was about the collective strength of their top six, right? They didn't have another top 25 guy beyond Steph Curry, but they had maybe four top 50 guys and then Kevon Looney and Jordan Poole and Gary Payton II and Otto Porter Jr. The Bucks, obviously 
very strong top four. And then Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton, PJ Tucker. So we've just seen how these things tend to go. And the teams that have the high two-way ceilings, the really good supporting casts are just better and more reliable than the teams that eviscerate their depth for the very top-heavy, potentially redundant skill sets. Which is why I want to ask you, is there a path to Phoenix building out this roster within this offseason to where they are a like Tier 1 title contender? And does it involve flipping DeAndre Ayton? If they're going to build out this bench to title caliber, genuine contention, I think it has to be by moving DeAndre Ayton. I mean, you just look at the new cap rules. And again, I think that's the most important thing about this trade, Carson, is over the next four seasons, even if you move Ayton, dude, it's going to be really hard. Like, the NBA made this new CBA to try to disperse the talent throughout this league. They don't want teams with three or four stars. Personally, I don't know. I kind of like it because it gives more, you know, it gives players the kind of autonomy to go and play with who they want and go team up. And uh, the league wants the talent spread out a little more. I think it's impossible if you keep DeAndre Ayton to build a good bench around here. Like, they can't even, Carson, they're not going to be able to use the mid-level exception, man. You are looking at, they've got five guys on the roster right now. Payne, Ayton, KD, D-Book, Bradley Beal. That's eight rotation spots that you are going to have to spend literally the league minimum, the bottom of the barrel. I think, well, I do think right now they can still spend the taxpayer MLE at $5 million. But it's one spot, right? One spot. Everybody else has to be minimum. Exactly. Like, I think you have to move DeAndre Aiden if that is what you're going to do. And again, I think the biggest issue is what you hit on at the tail end of that, Carson, is the surrounding pieces and defense. I think that was the biggest issue in Phoenix's title run. You're not going to be able to get any plus defenders. A friend of the show, Jason Temp, posts the hoops tonight. Great basketball content over there. I implore you guys to check it out. Uh, also mentioned what you said, Carson. You need gritty dogs down the end of the roster, the guys mm-hmm. who are going to do the little things, the hustle plays, the loose balls, crashing the glass. On this roster as it currently stands, Carson, I don't know if you have one plus defender. Like, shout out KD, shout out Book. They're pretty good. They're serviceable. I don't know if you have any gritty dogs. I don't know if you have any guys who are going to do the dirty work. I don't know if you have any plus defenders down the roster right now, and you need those guys. And yeah, I don't consider Phoenix in the upper echelon of contenders. So if they don't move DeAndre Ayton, I don't think you have even a good bench. Like, I just think there are too many limiting factors and too many red flags to me, Carson, to consider this team a legit contender, and I don't see them building out a great bench. I And that's the thing, man. Like you said, the opportunity cost. I don't know if there were any alternatives that they get a better supporting bench than they could if they didn't go out and get Bradley Beal, but I I don't love it, man. I think there's just a certain certain threshold that you have to pass in terms of quality defense that I don't think they're going to be able to reach. So, yeah, I think they have to explore moving DeAndre Ayton. One, again, for the bench for this season, but for the future years where you cannot have all this money tied up into these four guys because – yeah, you're just handcuffed. Uh, and also, D-Book's contract is up at the end of this season, too. And you just can't have those guys on the books if you want to sign him to an extension. So, yeah, I think you have to move Aiden and fill out the rest of this bench, man. Because I think you can get another big man to fill in for Aiden where you're getting 70 to 80% of his value. He's the most movable guy and most replaceable. I do think it's important to emphasize 
that there was no single move that was going to make Phoenix mm -hmm. a tier one contender again because of how far off they were in terms of roster. And that is a product of CP3's regression compared to what he was in like their finals run or even in the 2022 playoffs where it became apparent early in this past regular season and remained true in the playoffs that he could not handle the same kind of high volume offensive role that he had previously. And then obviously having to give up Crowder who hadn't been playing, but had played some important roles in previous playoff runs, but much more importantly, Cam Johnson, Macau Bridges, and all your future assets to get Kevin Durant. So that's why I think we can acknowledge that this is a deeply imperfect team that Bradley Beal is not perfect here without shredding the suns and saying, oh, why would you do this? Because I actually think that it does still make them a bit more intriguing for next year. And if they could turn Aiton into multiple like positive depth pieces, this could work in a like we can win a title sense. But the reporting Woj said a few days ago is that the market for Aiton is not good. I don't know why it would be. He is like a slightly above replacement level center who you're paying over $30 million for the next three years. They don't have an opportunity to do anything in the draft. And even with the taxpayer mid-level exception, are they really going to upgrade over even Tory Craig, right? Who is going to be a candidate who was on their roster last year with that kind of money? Like we've seen certain teams hit in recent years, the Nuggets getting Bruce Brown on an incredibly cheap deal. The Warriors this past year getting Dante DiVincenzo with the mid-level exception. But when I look at the candidates this year, DiVincenzo available again, he's going to be too expensive, I think. Max Struess, too expensive. Gabe Vincent, too expensive. So I just don't know that they're getting that quality role player there. And they are tied to all minimums besides that, not just this year, not just next year, through 2026, Logan. Unless they can move DeAndre Ayton, that is the configuration of their roster. And as we've talked about with the precedent of quality role players being so important, I just don't see it for them. You need guys who can knock down big shots, who can confidently attack closeouts, who can make good decisions with the ball, who can defend multiple positions, who can go and get you that big rebound like who can impact the game in multiple ways. The Phoenix Suns are completely lacking in those guys. And their only avenue to adding role players is going to be, hey, come win a title here on the minimum. And you're just not getting like legit good guys on the minimum. It would be incredibly, incredibly fortunate. So the Suns to me are in that sort of tier two of contenders where, yeah, they have puncher's chances in certain series, but we saw with this generationally great offensive production from Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, not at his best, but still being Kevin Durant, where those guys are combining to produce an efficient 63 points per game and 13 assists per game. They got comfortably balanced in the second round and frankly, were not as close as the 4-2 series score would suggest. Let's talk about this from the Wizards' perspective, Logan. Finally off of Bradley Beal after years of chatter. How do you feel about this for them? Yeah, I mean, it's just the Wizards doing Wizards things, man. Uh, this is a team mm -hmm. that is just completely lost. Uh, that, like, the way I think about it, man, 
remember back when they had John Wall, and of course John Wall was one of the best point guards in the league when they inked that deal, right? But they signed him to this mammoth contract and then uh, eventually have to move off of him. You kind of have a almost mirror image of that. Oh, let's hang on to Bradley Beal too long. Like, dude, if you mm-hmm. had just moved him a year or two ago, you could have gotten a haul, Washington. You trade him to a contender. You get some first-round picks probably that would have been around this year or last year. Uh, his contract was a lot better then, and I still know he had the no-trade clause, so he could have dictated where he went, but his value was sick. I remember two years ago, Carson, he was averaging 32 points per game, only six assists, but like you mentioned, had improved as a passer, was a legitimate good playmaker, was the lead ball handler here in Washington, uh, had the most uh, the most assists per game like coupled if his teammates would make shots. Like He just had a horrible supporting cast around him, so I think this is a gaffe. Uh, another big-time gaffe by Washington in terms of just not getting off of him earlier and letting mm-hmm. it come to this. Uh, just another foolish move. And again, the no-trade clause. Smooth move, guys. Could have got a couple first-round picks. Could have got some nice role players. Uh, Washington does Washington things. Yeah, I mean, this is cool. You get off of him. They That's the one silver lining about this. You've got a young core. You've got two B players in Kuzma and Porzingis, right? I don't love the configuration of this roster. This is a team that's probably going to win 28 to 34 games next season. But that being said, they've got some young guys that I like. I still want to see more Johnny Davis. He looked good down the last month and month and a half of the season. You've got Denny Avdija on some pretty uh, cheap money. So they've got a lot of money to spend over the next couple of years, and they've got a lot of flexibility. That's the one silver lining to this for Washington you don't get peak Beal value. I, I presume they're probably going to cut Chris Paul. I don't expect them to give him burn. If they do, I don't really think it makes that big of a difference. Uh, but again, they've got a lot of flexibility and a lot of money that they can play with over the next few years, and that's the most important aspect of this. So they've got flexibility moving forward, but they definitely did not move off of Bradley Beal <laughs> at peak value. Yeah, good for them, dude. They finally did the thing that everybody around the league has been clamoring for them to do for years. And I understand that Beal repeatedly stated his commitment and he had a no trade clause, but I think it's a disaster in the scope of things. Like this is really pennies on the dollar value for what you would have gotten for Beal a few years ago. I mean, even with the Mammoth extension, right? Pre-regression, people tend to underestimate how soon regression could be coming for any one player and people would have looked at Beal and said oh my god he's a clear top 20 guy it's a star hungry league let's pay the price of a couple firsts and a quality young piece alongside that and that didn't happen the bottom line is they made the playoffs once in all of the Beal solo years post John Wall they lost in five games they paid him this massive contract a disaster and They leave this entire era having not had a top eight pick with no cornerstone young players. And by the way, they just traded away one of the best, Rui Hachimura, for second rounders. And they are now left with Kuz and Porzingis, who are good, not great, expensive players in their late 20s, both of whom could be free agents. So they're completely directionless. They have nothing to hang their hat on. And they came to this conclusion just way. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Too late. Other angle to explore here, Logan, is what happens with Chris Paul. Because it does not seem like he will be staying in Washington there's been rumors of the Clippers wanting to pursue him, the Warriors wanting to pursue him, and he is still a good NBA player who can positively impact a lot of situations. So how do you think this all plays out with him? Yeah, I don't think he plays in Washington. I laid out a couple destinations uh, where I think he fits. I think the Clippers are one still in need of a legitimate point guard. Uh, I like Russell Westbrook coming off the bench. I just don't think he's... That guy, I know he had stretches, man. It's still Russell Westbrook. I think he's a better fit reuniting, going home to back to the Clippers, uh, and could you know actually be of of benefit to those guys. Again, takes a little bit of pressure off Kawhi. PG can set the table for them. I also think the other LA team. I think the Lakers uh, should be an intriguing destination. You know, Reeves is great. Uh, I still want him getting his touches and stuff like that. But if they lose D'Lo, you know, I think Chris Paul's a, a really solid replacement. Yeah. Um, you've got two guys who can run the pick and roll really well with him. Uh, AD, LeBron, guys who will thrive off of Chris Paul. Uh, I still think, you know, I think Chris has this negative stigma around him after a bad playoff run. But I still think he's a legitimately good NBA player and a guy that can provide really good rotational minutes to a contending team. So my two favorite destinations are probably either of the LA teams. And again, I legitimately think that Chris Paul improves their team and will help them contend for a title. I agree. Those are my two favorites as well. I think the Lakers 
is my favorite pure basketball situation because I think they are going to need more ball handling, more playmaking if they do let D'Lo go, which I think they should because to me, CP3 is more dependable, a better decision maker. D'Lo was so erratic, so reliant on his tough shot making in that playoff run. And if they can get him there, get that LeBron friend championship contending discount for real cheap, which I could see happening for CP3 at this age, then I think that that would be an upgrade. And especially as LeBron wants to play more and more off ball and whatnot, AD not being a great creator for himself, it just makes sense to bring CP3 in as that maestro that he is. And the Clippers is also interesting. I do think it would be good to see them with somebody who can really just dictate the game, find Kawhi and PG in their spots and whatnot. I also do wonder, though, if he could sort of have some of the same redundancies there that he did in Phoenix, where you're like, all right, bottom line, Kawhi and PG are good enough playmakers and are these great scoring weapons that why wouldn't we just want them dictating more possessions than CP? I think there's more conflict of skill set there than there would be with the Lakers, but I think he would make either one of those teams markedly better like not a ton better but he would have a positive impact in those situations to me so that will be very interesting to track other thing we're going to hit on today logan we are going to be addressing our biggest questions for the nba draft we're going to do a full mock on wednesday but today we're just going to start with what's on our mind and the first thing Logan is who do you expect to go second overall to the Charlotte Hornets Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller well the Hornets reportedly really like Brandon Miller and uh, I do too I think he's a really good fit alongside LaMelo Ball Uh, the Hornets were one of the worst three-point shooting teams in all of the NBA last season they desperately need three-point shooting and that's what Brandon Miller brings to the table man he's got a really smooth buttery stroke six foot nine 200 pounds Uh, So we'll immediately be a great spot-up guy alongside a lead ball handler and LaMelo Ball. But you're also getting a guy who has legitimate star wing scoring upside, super athletic, got a nice handle. Uh, You know, he's going to be able to attack closeouts immediately at a really high level, but can get downhill. I think he needs to improve his finishing around the rim. I think that's his biggest flaw right now. I think he'll be a really good pull-up jump shooter, a really good shooter from behind the arc. If he can get better at getting downhill and converting attempts at the basket, Uh, he's going to eat. But again, man, there's a lot of things to like here, especially with the fact that he got to the line too, man. That's a really, um, you know, transferable skill that converts well to the NBA. Nearly five free throw attempts per game. Um, Yeah, he was super aggressive last year. So I think he's a better fit than Scoot. I think there are some redundancies there. Both of those guys better with the ball in their hands. Uh, let uh, Let me be clear. I like Scoot Henderson. Uh, but I just think there's a little more redundancy there. Uh, and I, I just think Brandon Miller's uh, also a better prospect. So uh, I think you're getting a guy that compliments LaMelo Ball right now, but has legitimate uh, superstar upside. And again, like I said, I think the Hornets like him too. So uh, I think Brandon Miller goes too to Charlotte. I think some people are putting this in terms of why would you prioritize fit so much over talent and pass on a generational guy like Scoot, which as we've discussed before, I think Scoot is great. I also think Brandon Miller is great. A guy with the potential to be a highly versatile, elite offensive weapon, fantastic shooter, pulling up and off the catch, coming out of handoffs. 
in transition at his size with the legit advanced ball handling, some of the feel out of the pick and roll, patience, manipulation of defenders, some of the playmaking instincts. Not that it's all fully fleshed out and developed, but stuff that's really impressive to see from a college freshman at that size. And then with the potential to be a high-impact secondary rim protector and to hang with guards as a legitimate point of attack defender. Very good rebounder. I just think Brandon Miller is great and does so many things so well that his floor is pretty darn high, as is his ceiling. So when you consider that, I view him as a marginally better prospect than Scoot, very marginally, but a clearly better fit. Like, Melo runs the fifth most pick and roll in the league, man. And sure, he's not sharing the backcourt with somebody who would demand more primary ball handling duties, and he does have some off-ball value because of his pure catch and shooting, but he's a guy who wants to be dictating most possessions with his facilitating and pick and roll feel and whatnot. And I think Scoot is the tougher guy to fit into a backcourt with another ball dominant guard because he wants to dominate the ball and do so without a reliable jumper, which although he's this explosive athlete and you can weaponize him as a cutter maybe in spots, it just makes him hard to fit into a role like that. So I think Miller gives them a go-to scoring wing. He fits the up-tempo pace that they want to play at. Very good transition player. Runs the court well. Athletic and a weapon shooting in space. Provides a much-needed defensive asset and potentially cornerstone on that end of the floor. And I think can honestly develop a pretty cool two-man game with LaMelo. He's never going to be like a good screener, but when it comes to slipping screens, ghost screens... Uh, getting himself looks from deep and potentially then going to work attacking closeouts and whatnot. There's just so many ways for Brandon Miller to have a positive impact on the game. And I think he is a more intuitive fit in Charlotte. And that is what the reporting says they think as well. So as we move our way to the third pick, the big story Logan has been, is Portland going to trade it? And to who? I've said throughout the draft process, because uh, this is probably one of the biggest storylines in the draft, I don't think Portland should trade this pick. Uh, I think they should just commit to a rebuild. I think, you know, we just talked about Washington waiting way too long to trade their asset. Look, man, if you trade Damian Lillard right now, you can set yourself up for the future. You can get a massive haul for him, a bunch of first-round picks, probably a rotational guy, quality guy right now with upside you don't want to miss out on that, right? Because a lot of things mm -hmm. can happen in just one season, and you don't ever know when that regression is going to set in. So I still think they should trade Damian Lillard to whoever's biting, and there's got to be somebody out there, right? Uh, Dame wants to stick to the grind. Apparently Portland's with him in that, so I think they're going to stick this thing out, and they're probably going to move this pick. I think there are two trade destinations that make sense uh, for both sides. The first one is to Chicago, uh, who I have heard uh, from multiple places, wants to completely blow it up. I think you move number three in Nurkic, and I don't love it, but you got to make the money work because I don't think Nurkic and Vooch work, but Vooch is a free agent, so they can move on from him. Number three in Nurkic to the Bulls for Zach Levine and Alex Caruso. Uh, you get a really good defensive guard. You get another really good bucket getter alongside Dame. Uh, I think that's probably the move. Or DeRozan, I like that one probably a little less. Uh, you get another decent star alongside Dame, see if they can play winning basketball. I don't think it's a fix-all but you're getting two quality guys. And the other one that I probably like a little more, 
Uh, that's to the Raptors. You move the same package, number three in Nurkic for Siakam, uh, who I love, man. I, I think Siakam's severely underrated, just playing, you know, not playing winning basketball there in Toronto. Can do it all at the five spot. Uh, pretty good defender, really good offensive weapon, can space the floor, can get downhill, can create for himself, uh, is a good role, man. Or maybe Ananobi and Trent Jr. I don't really think that's requisite value for the number three pick and Nurkic, but Ananobi's one of the best role players in the league. You're getting a guy with a, uh, you know, a flamethrower on him and Gary Trent Jr. who can just get hot at the drop of a hat, sending him back to Portland. Uh, so those are my two spots. I, I definitely prefer getting the stars in Siakam or Levine, but like I said, man, I don't really think that's the right direction that Portland should take. I think they're a lot better off exploring trading Dame, leaning into the full rebuild, yeah. and building around Simon Sharp, the guy that you get, and whoever you can get with that third pick. I legitimately think it would be disastrous for Portland if they trade this pick, and I think we will inevitably look back on their entire attempt to extend the Dame window and turn it into a contending roster as just a misstep and feel like you would with the Wizards and Bradley Beal, that they just should have conceded defeat much sooner, even though you have this star who is great and who wants to stick around. And of course, Portland's roster has consistently been better than Washington. Dame's in a different tier than Beal. But the principle of them not being at that level and compromising their future to try to force it is ultimately the same to me. The Bulls won... Is interesting, but you would have to give up another big contract to make that work, which means probably Ant Simons or Jeremy Grant, at which point it's like you're giving up one of your legitimate plus impact guys and I think a remarkable guard talent in Scoot Henderson, and you're not getting the level that you need to. Most importantly, on the defensive end of the floor, Caruso is incredible there, but is not single-handedly transforming you from the number 27 defense to a championship caliber one. And I think if you're looking at a Siakam trade, it's just the same thing. It's not going to push you over the edge to me. The other ones that we've heard rumored are maybe Carl Anthony Towns, but it seems like that package would require, again, Scoot. That's how I'm viewing it. It's the number three picture, but it's probably going to be Scoot Henderson, who's a fantastic prospect. Anthony Simons for contract purposes, and then maybe a pick on top of that. Zion, you would think, is something similar. It just doesn't make sense to me. You are still going to be defensively inept, Cat is not fixing that. Zion is not fixing that. Not to mention both guys have availability issues. Zion to the extreme, obviously. You are not going to have comparable role players to the best teams out West, and you are going to butcher your future in this wild goose chase for something that is just not attainable. Like if they added Cat or Zion at that price where they're giving up the number three pick and Ant Simons, would you take them over Denver? Certainly not. Would you take them over either LA team? I don't think so. Would you take them over Sacramento? I probably wouldn't. Like that is an elite offense that uh, frankly is less flawed defensively maybe than what Portland is working with. I still probably wouldn't take them over the Warriors because of the two-way ceiling there. So I just think they have to go in the opposite direction. We're hearing reporting about them talking with Miami. It's all so muddied up what's going on in terms of their direction. But I think if you get a haul for Dame, Tyler Hero, 
a couple of firsts and then whatever remaining cap filler you need. And then I would probably look to flip Hero, honestly, at some point, because I think then you're looking at too much young backcourt talent and he's probably my least favorite of the bunch. But then you're cooking with gas, man. Like, Shaden Sharp, I think, is a phenomenally talented, hyper-athletic, dynamic shooting young guard. Ant Simons is legitimately one of the best pick-and-roll scorers in the league, a special shooter with developing playmaking. And then Scoot would be like the cornerstone. He would be the guy who you think can turn into an all-NBA guard confidently down the line. So it just makes so much more sense to me when they can have such a promising timeline in the works and they can continue to add assets to strengthen that timeline because Miami does have those picks to give up. That just has to be the direction they go. And I am praying that it is a blockbuster for some other star would be fun. You know, it's vintage NBA offseason stuff, but it is not the best for their organization. All right. Logan, who do you view as the biggest boom or bust prospect in this class? I've got two guys written down. The first one that I'll start out with is Gigi Jackson, who I mentioned in our uh, lottery projection last time. And uh, yeah, man, there's a wide range of outcomes for Gigi, right? He's 6'9", 215 pounds, and his game is really smooth, uh, aesthetically pleasing, especially if you put, if you put on the highlights, because I've noticed, Carson, in those, they don't miss a lot of shots. That's uh, one of my favorite right. things about highlights. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Gigi, at his best, looks disgusting. He looks like, you know, Clarence Carmelo Anthony. He looks like Kevin Durant out there. His strides are massive. He's got a really wide handle, and it allows him to get into space with ease. And then when you talk about tough shot making, he's got it all. Smooth step backs, fadeaways, turnarounds, all kinds of off-the-dribble creation that you look for in star wing scores. And so all those boxes are checked. What's the one issue? He is a massive black hole on offense. He does not play team basketball. His shot selection is horrendous, and he doesn't really get downhill all the way and create elite rim pressure. He shot 38% from the field, 32% from deep. Was literally the definition of a black hole on offense. If it was his possession, it was his possession. I also don't know about his attitude, man. He got benched one time uh, during this regular season, Carson, for an outburst on Instagram Live where uh, he got pulled from the starting rotation. So, there's some major red flags there. And again, I don't think Gigi Jackson is a guy that's going to crack a rotation immediately. I think he needs to spend some time in the G League and refine his game, get more accustomed to the NBA game. And that is playing unselfishly, that is playing hard on defense, and that is yeah, just playing team basketball and cleaning up his shot selection. So there is a very, very wide range of outcomes uh, with his game. Also, I have to mention, he's the youngest prospect in this draft. So... Yeah, there's, there's a wide range, I think, with him in terms of his NBA game. The other guy I want to point to, uh, who I didn't mention last episode, he's projected to go late in the first round. That is Dariq Whitehead. Uh, there's a lot to like with Whitehead. He's a former top recruit. Uh, was Naismith Player of the Year in 2022. Uh, was formerly the number three ranked uh, overall prospect. Was the former number one ranked small forward. When Whitehead got to Duke, First, one of the first team workouts that he had, he suffered a foot fracture, uh, immediately underwent surgery, missed a couple uh, first weeks of the season with Duke, um, came back, just had no burst or explosiveness. Now, he is an elite shooter, uh, shot 33 mm-hmm. or shot 36% on off-the-dribble threes, shot 40% on contested threes, shot over 43% on catch-and-shoot attempts, and shot nearly 43% on overall uh, attempts from behind the arc. He is 
an elite, elite shooter, and he has some smooth off-the-dribble creation too, man. Like, step-backs, fadeaways, all the stuff that I mentioned with Gigi, Whitehead has too. But every other facet of his game looks severely underdeveloped. The handle, the explosiveness mm-hmm. off the dribble, uh, defensively in terms of awareness, IQ, engagement, and in lateral quickness. So... The reason that I say there is a boomer bust potential with Whitehead, he had a second surgery on June 8th uh, to repair his foot. If that explosiveness and burst returns, you are looking at a guy that is maybe the complete package uh, if all that comes back. If it doesn't, you are looking at a guy that maybe is just as pure spot-up shooter. And we've mm-hmm. noticed in recent history, those guys aren't, don't normally succeed, right? I don't see him ever being out of the league because he is a pure, pure shooter, but he could be a liability as a ball handler, as a defender, and just could really pigeonhole as a straight spot-up shooter if those things don't return. So those are the guys that I think have the biggest boom or bust potential, probably more with G.G. Jackson, but I think if it's far-fetched, man. You know, we, we don't really see explosiveness and athletic burst return after you suffer a major injury like that, but if it does... Whitehead could potentially be a star. But those are my two guys uh, that I think have a, a really wide range of outcomes. So we sort of looked to different kind of prospects here. I would mm-hmm. say the guys who I was thinking of were probably in a, a higher echelon mm-hmm. where I'm a little bit more confident in the boom. With Gigi, I know you love him. I think that there's just a lot of issues there in terms of practical skill sets that translate the inconsistency of his shot, obviously the very bad shot selection, the lack of consistently impressive playmaking, just overall not manufacturing easy high probability offense. I just think you compare him to Mello, maybe there's a bit more Marcus Morris in there to me. And I think a lot of times... I want to. I said, so many dudes I said clearance out there with Carmelo, bro. Don't do me like that. Clearance Mello fair, which maybe is honestly clearance Nick's Mello. Maybe that is Marcus Morris when he had a little bit more run of the show at a couple of his stops. But I just think there's so many guys out there that have pure game, and I feel like Gigi is one of those guys where yeah, he has the moments, but not necessarily the all around value that I would bet on translating. And then with Dariq Whitehead. Yeah, I just love the shooting. I mean, you're right. Pulling up off the catch, it's really impressive. But I agree with you. Below average ball handler, not a super dynamic on-ball creator. Has his playmaking moments, solid instincts, but he makes a lot of mistakes there. And just doesn't get to the rim. Shot 42% on twos Mm -hmm. this season, which I think is definitely a reflection of that. So those are both guys who I would look at as like late, late first rounders who I'm not super confident in reaching a high ceiling. My first guy here is actually a top five prospect and it's Amen Thompson, just because I think he is so unique and there is no NBA comparison that I really like him. But the pure fact that his shot is so bad right now, like there's not a great NBA guard who has no ability to keep you honest with a pull-up three. Again, we've talked about you don't need to be good, but you need to be in that John Morant range where you can hit it in the low 30s. And a floater game, like something to really devastate drop coverage. Jaw is a guy who has a really good floater game. So does every good pick-and-roll guard in the NBA today. And a man does not have 
either of those attributes right now. I think his shot needs to be reworked mechanically entirely, and he's just really lacking in high-level touch. So I would take him in the top five because I think he's one of the best athletes I've ever seen. Probably the quickest first step from a 6'7 dude with insane vertical ability as well. I think he is a uniquely gifted playmaker for that size, can make so many different passes, so creative, so much velocity, one-handed live dribble pick and roll situations, can hit anybody on the floor, great in transition, awesome defensive attributes. So I would think all of those things combined gives him a high enough floor to where he could find a way to be a starting guard no matter what. But if you have a guy who is commanding your offense and who can't beat drop coverage with pull-up shooting or a floater game, I could see that dragging him down significantly. Like if he's just a brutally inefficient scorer because of that. I like him a lot. I would bet on him panning out, but I do see that outcome. The other guy is one of your favorites in this class, and that is Keontae George, who I have as my number 12 prospect because I think he does some things at a level that almost nobody in this class does. Like the variety of shot-making tools he has in his bag from the perimeter is ridiculous. His ball handling is dynamic. There is this fluidity, this ability to hit step backs, tough pull-up jumpers consistently that is so impressive. And then he has these great moments as a playmaker too, as we've talked about, where he's really creating advantages and he's making these impressive lobs and whipping passes to the roller and trying to fit these tight window bounce passes in. But he makes a lot of mistakes there. He averaged more turnovers than assists last year. And... I don't think that he's going to be like a significant plus defensively to where that raises his floor. So he really struggles to create high quality, easy looks from two. Like he was 42% inside the arc. And I think a guy who didn't create a ton of looks around the rim because he doesn't really have that high end first step and had a lot of tough finishes around there because he's not this overwhelming vertical athlete. So because of that pull-up shooting ceiling and the shooting ability all around, because of the handle and creation and some of the pick-and-roll feel and playmaking, I could see him being a star, but it's not a very common mold. Mm -hmm. Again, most of the stars in this league can get into the paint with regularity, create high-quality looks there, and Keontae hasn't shown that ability consistently, but he's got some special, really intriguing traits. Let's take this out to a team perspective, Logan. Who do you think is under the most pressure to nail this draft? I think it's imperative that the Dallas Mavericks uh, hit the nail on the head with their mm-hmm. first-round pick. Uh, you just think about how disgruntled uh, Luka Doncic uh, seems in Dallas, right? You don't know how much longer you have with him, how much lack of success he can deal with. This last season... Uh, specifically the end of the year, I mean, look really disengaged, just look down. Uh, you know, they go 8-12 and 12 with Kyrie Irving after they add him, don't make the playoffs, throw in the towel in that last game. You have got to get back to contention because Luka's one of the best five guys on the planet, man. I'm taking, you know, very few players over Luka. And if there's another disappointing season, there's a very high chance that at the end of it, mm-hmm. he goes, I want out of here, deal me, find me a trade, uh, you know, another team that I can go to. Uh, the rumors are saying that Kyrie Irving has a very limited market for him in this free agency. 
I understand why. And so it looks like Dallas is going to be able to retain Kyrie. So what do you have to do with the surrounding assets? Well, you've got to get a guy who complements Luka and Kyrie well and especially can really play defense at a high level. So I'm hoping that somebody like uh, Taylor Hendricks or Jairus mm-hmm. Walker is available there because you you want to check two boxes with the guy that the Mavericks draft there uh, in that spot, and that is immediate play, uh, plug-and-play potential uh, alongside these two guys who can play defense at a high level immediately off the bat. I think Walker and Hendricks uh, tick that box. And then the other one is legitimate upside to where they're not just a guy who's going to be a role player and a rotation piece, but a guy that can be a not a superstar, but a really good complementary, you know, somewhere in that 15 to 20 point per game range, along with being a great defensive asset. And like I said, they compliments both those guys. And I don't know if there's another team that's in that uh, realm um, in terms of has to nail this draft. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Dallas is head and shoulders because it's, it's dire straits, man. If they don't nail this on the head, Luka Doncic could be gone uh, in, in this upcoming offseason. Totally agree. Dallas has to be number one on this list. And lucky for them, they retained their pick, which was top 10 protected. They land right at number 10. I think you laid out exactly the kind of player they have to hope falls to them at 10. Jairus Walker, I don't think that's going to happen. Taylor Hendricks would be a dream come true. I just think they really need a two-way wing because... The whole appeal with Kyrie was, oh, we're going to add this other great dynamic offensive creator. They were already a really good offense. They're probably an even better offense with Kyrie, but this was the number six team in terms of offensive rating last year, but they just decimated their defensive front court, which was already teetering. Bye-bye Dorian Finney-Smith, and they just really, really struggled on that end of the floor. So Hendricks is a guy out of UCF who is going to play that modern four role who can guard multiple positions who's a great shooter who can attack mismatches out of the post like just an all-around positive impact kind of guy I would love that for them outside of that though I'm a bit concerned because that late lottery range there's not a lot of those like two-way wing kind of guys like uh, the next on my list who meets that criteria might be like Bilal Koulibaly Wemby's teammate who was just way too raw to be thrust into a win now situation like that so I don't know they might need to do some praying I would I I regard a guy like Grady Dick very highly who I think will be there I think his offensive skill set is perfect but again it's just not fixing their defensive issues in the front court so they uh, only have so many options who really fit there ideally and we'll see if they can land one of them. I'll throw out a couple other teams that I think have a lot of pressure on them. Number one is Washington because they are now pivoting. As we talked about with the Beal trade, they have not landed that cornerstone prospect. They're picking eight here, which isn't great, but there's a chance they could get like a real high upside guy because this is a strong draft. I think they should be looking for a dynamic guard a la Asar Thompson, Anthony Black, I love Taylor Hendricks. I don't know that a guy like that is moving the needle in the same way. I think take a big swing. Those are big guards, plus athletes, high two-way ceilings, shooting questions for both of them, but real playmaking value. Black is going to be more of that like primary ball handler type. Asar is maybe a secondary ball handler, but who just 
impacts the game in so many ways. Transition, playmaking, potentially could be a capable spot-up shooter. And then I think Orlando. And the reason I think Orlando is because they have two lottery picks and they are in a position now where they're legitimately close to accomplishing meaningful stuff. Like with Paolo, with Franz having developed into the player that he is, with a guy like Wendell Carter Jr., just good front court player, Fultz coming back, being healthy, legitimately good. Like this could be a playoff team next year. And more importantly, this could be one of the league's best teams if they continue to nail these picks down the line. So I think... There's multiple ways they could go at six. They could try to get that sort of lead guard with an Anthony Black. They could try to add another like big wing slash four with a Jairus Walker, or Taylor Hendricks, versatile skill set. I don't like that as much just because I think Paolo and Franz are already just big guys in the front court. I would prefer that they add more of like a two, three kind of wing as instead of a four type, but maybe it's Cam Whitmore there. You just add an absurd athlete with some shooting and two-way potential. I think my favorite though would be Asar Thompson for them because you're getting a freak athlete who doesn't have to dominate the ball, but as I just mentioned, can do so many complimentary things if Fultz isn't the kind of guy who I would like avoid taking the best player available for necessarily, but I think Asar probably would be the best player available if he's there. And I do think Fultz is legit good. He's definitely not a guy who they need to look to replace and he fits with their timeline. He just turned 25. Then at number 11, I think they're probably best suited looking for like a really high floor, super skilled guy, a Grady Dick, a Kaysan Wallace, dudes who I'm just super confident in translating but Orlando can really, really, really build something if they nail this draft. So I do think that there's actually some pressure on them. All right, Logan, who do you view as the surest thing in this class? Outside of the top guys, obviously, I don't want you to say Wemby. Like, who are you just really confident is going to be a good player? That's a guy you just brought up. I think it's Kaysan Wallace, and uh, I've got him very high on my board. So he actually is one of the highest guys for me. Um you look at the veteran instinct that Kaysan has, his feel for the game, his poise and pace out of the pick and roll, his decision-making, and his ability to seamlessly fit into a team offense right now and play winning collaborative basketball. Uh, out of the pick and roll, routinely kicks out to a shooter, relocates to the corner, right off ball. Uh, takes his time navigating through the lane, has a nice in-between floater and pull-up game, and is a legitimately good defender uh, on top of that. A bit undersized, but he's got a really big wingspan. He's super strong. He uh, just moves really well. And uh, I know you don't. I think the Kaysan has legitimate star upside. I can see this guy being one of the best two-way guards in the league one day. Uh, his scoring skill set isn't nearly as developed uh, as other guys, but I think it could come with time, uh, that creation uh, off the dribble, right? He doesn't have insane burst. Um, I think he makes up with that uh, with pretty good change in pace. But yeah, off the bat, is just going to play winning basketball wherever he goes, man. Uh, just veteran instincts, IQ, and he brings legitimate two-way upside, man. But my favorite things about him offensively, that feel out of the pick and roll, his perimeter shooting, mm -hmm. and his willingness to just play unselfish basketball, man. I think Kaysan Wallace is as sure of a thing as they come in this draft, and I would not hesitate to take him, you know, top 10. I, I think he's legitimately uh, that good. I have Kaysan at 11 on my board, but I think he is honestly the best pick for this category just because great decision-making, playmaking, plus shooting, uh, plus defense. 
he does a lot of things really well. I just have him that low because I don't see the star ceiling due to just the lack of sort of dynamic shot creation, high-end athleticism, but I am super confident he's going to be good. So I guess I'll go with the other guy who I just mentioned for Orlando at number 11. I'm pretty darn confident that Grady Dick's going to be a good player at the next level just because he is a phenomenal shooter, 40% from deep, 85% from the line, doing so, coming off screens, highly active off-ball mover, great in transition, and then I just think he complements really any offense with his skill set, attacking closeouts, a guy who's going to cut well, crash the offensive glass, and legitimately a good playmaker makes good decisions there can hit the roller can hit shooters and he doesn't have that star potential I don't think the only reason I hesitate about putting him in this category is that I do think he's going to be a pretty average defender he's going to compete there which is why I'm confident he will be average even if he doesn't have the greatest physical traits I don't think he's going to get dogged but average defenders who rely on effort in postseason scenarios can turn into exploitable defenders and we have seen guys who are like really good regular season role players because of their pure shooting fizzle out a bit become unplayable in certain playoff matchups I don't think Grady Dick falls into that category though because of his competitiveness and because of his offensive versatility he's not just a shooter he's a good playmaker a good closeout attacker all of those things and I think that gives him a pretty darn high floor at the next level Who's your favorite sleeper in this class, Logan? So I've got two guys for this one. First, one of my dogs, uh, Adama Sonogo. I've seen uh, a lot of mocks mm. project him late second round, some of them uh, undrafted. And uh, let me be clear about this. I, you know, I don't think he's got star upside. I don't think you're looking at a, you know, a generational big man or anything like that slipping late. But I think he's a uh, immediate rotational big man. Uh, with veteran instincts, IQ, and hustle. Super strong, 6'9", 7'3", wingspan, 245 pounds. I love his offensive game in the on the low block, uh, on the post. Footwork, touch with both of his hands, strength, the way he weaponizes his physicality and strength on the low block. He's a dog, a, a hustler, a, a great rebounder, and I don't think he's going to be a dominant rim protector, but I think he's pretty switchable and pretty serviceable on that end. So I love Sonogo. I think he's a first-round guy just because, again, I think you can play him immediately in your rotation. And the second guy, uh, I have Amoni Bates, uh, you know, former top recruit. You know, I don't think Bates is going to be a superstar or anything, but I don't know, dude. You look at the tough shot making that he still possesses. He maybe could be like in the mold of a, a Chris Middleton, right? Because he doesn't have that crazy athleticism. He doesn't have that crazy burst. But he does have that tough shot-making skill set, dude. It is disgusting uh, what he can do off the dribble. So maybe he does pop, but I think he's an elite shooter and uh, with his size and wingspan could potentially be a plus defender one day too. But he's just a disgustingly good, tough shot-maker, and that's why I wouldn't mm-hmm. hesitate to draft him either. So you went a little bit deeper for your sleepers than I did. I will say I like Sunogo too, not quite as much as you, but I think... Good touch, right? Physically imposing, smart all-around player, efficient guy, a really good length even if he doesn't have all-around great size because of his height. And in a class that really is just lacking for good bigs, I could see him rising a bit. 
The Amani one is interesting, but it sort of reminds me of the conversation that we had with Gigi Jackson. It's dudes who have game, dudes who can be buckets, but can they impact the game positively? Because you're not going to treat Amani as a star. You're not going to run offense through him. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of Brandon Boston Jr. as a prospect, right? Both guys were super highly regarded coming out of high school, top 10 players in their class, not good college careers, but you see these traits like the handles at their size, the difficult shot making. And I liked BJ Boston as a prospect. I thought, hey, this guy's going 51st overall. Come on, he's got so much game. And then year two, obviously he's in a winning situation, but he's still not getting rotation minutes. And it's because he's not doing enough of the other things at a high level. And I sort of feel that Imani falls into that same category. Yes, there's upside. Am I confident in that upside panning out, even with the special moments? Not particularly. Is he more talented than your average 50-something pick? I mean, there's no question about that. And I do think that he's worth drafting. The character legal concerns are a nice little extra wrinkle to add in on top of being slight as hell and not passing the ball, all these things. But man, he is a crazy shot maker. My pick for this was a guy who was expected to go in the very late first, probably somewhere between 25 and 30. And that is Chris Murray, who, for those of you who don't know, is Keegan Murray, the number four pick last year, his twin brother. Played together at Iowa. The only real difference is that Chris is a lefty. But I think age is obviously the big dissuading factor here. Murray is going to be 23 when his rookie year starts. But I think he does a lot of things really, really well. I think you're looking at a guy who is going to be a versatile offensive weapon, good shooter, mismatch attacker, and a plus defender. I think he is, first of all, capable of being like a really good catch and shoot spot up guy at the next level. He wasn't great in terms of shooting in college, 34% from deep, 73% from the line. So maybe he's not quite the caliber of shooter that Keegan is, but I do think that he's good there. But then it's the number of ways that he can get a bucket within the flow of an offense or for himself. He's a very patient, physical driver with great touch. So he's not going to explode by you with like some crazy first step, but he does get where he wants on the court pretty consistently and then finishes well. 91st percentile post score. He's got this ability to spin into these tough finishes consistently, especially with that left hand. And then in transition, runs the floor well. Shooting like that is always a weapon. But it's beyond that. He's a good passer, decision maker within the flow of an offense. He's a good screener, which helps him flow into multiple different sort of actions and just grease the wheels of the offense overall. And then defensively is bigger wing, pretty long, but also a, a strong guy who uses his body well, who moves his feet laterally really quite well. Good hands, a plus defensive playmaker, both forcing steals and as a shot blocker, who is highly switchable and super productive in college, man. Like his uh, production is really pretty similar to Keegan. He's given you 20 and eight with like a steal and a block a night for a good Iowa team so no he is not that caliber of as, as a prospect he's a year older but I do think two-way value mismatch attacking shooting multifaceted impact on both ends of the floor even at this age makes him a guy that I'm pretty darn confident in succeeding and I would maybe take 
somewhere in the top 20 as opposed to like 30. I think that would be really good value. Yeah, I've got him at like 23 or 22 on my big board. I've got him in that range of uh, solid college guys who've been there for a minute who are immediately, you know, going to be able to to be, mm-hmm. get minutes in a rotation. You know, the the Colby Joneses of the world, the Julian Strothers, the Trace Jackson Davis. But like you said, man, I think he brings something to the table uh, in terms of two-way value, especially that defense, man. I think that's a huge thing. There's a premium of big, strong defensive wings that I think every rotation needs yep. today. And uh, like you said, dude, there's late in the first round is where teams really need to start thinking about who can play immediately right now. And there's not like a, I don't know, there's not like a, a deficiency in his game, right? He's going to play unselfish mm-hmm. team basketball. He's going to space the floor. He's not just a catch and shooter. And he's going to be a good defender. I like him a lot, too. Uh, I don't like as much as you, but I think any team that drafts him is going to be pleasantly pleased. You're getting a guy who can be a, a really serviceable role player for, for for a long time. And you know, I don't think he's got like star upside, but I think he's a really well-rounded guy who can contribute to winning right off the bat, much like his brother did. Yeah, he does things that every single team values highly, and I think that's going to translate. Last question we have here today, Logan. It's a bit niche, but I think it's an interesting one. So all of the former top three recruits from the 2022 high school class have fallen significantly in draft boards. That being Nick Smith Jr. of Arkansas and then Derek Lively II and Derek Whitehead, who we already talked about a bit, both of them being from Duke. None of those guys expected to go in the lottery now. Out of those three, who do you think has the highest chance to redeem himself to pan out as an impressive NBA player? Yeah, this, this is a tough question, man. I I think Whitehead is going to have a job for a long time just because he's such a good, pure shooter. I think there's always going to be a need for really good shooters in the NBA. Um, I like Derek Lively, the second man, but oh God, he's so raw offensively, dude. He's so offensively limited. Like, and I also just think he he fouls a little bit too much defensively. Like, he's he's a really raw guy. Like, there's a lot to like, you know, the length, the projectability. If he, you know, hits his ceiling, like, could be a great rim protector. I'd probably say Nick Smith Jr., though. I just like his game mm-hmm. the most out of all of those guys. Um, and the reason I say that, first, it's the pillowy soft touch, man. There aren't a whole lot of guys in the NBA or in this draft class in the NBA as a whole that have the touch that Nick Smith Jr. does. I am a sucker for guys with good floater game. If I see you hit one floater on tape, um, uh, my eyes pop out of my head, my jaw drops, my tongue falls out like a cartoon dog. Um, I'm sitting there going, "Auga!" like, wow, man, this guy's got a floater game. So uh, I really like Nick Smith's touch and his floater game in the in-between area. That's one of my favorite things about him. He's got a tight handle. He's got crazy burst. He's a good cutter. He's flashed his playmaking skills. So I think there's a lot to like there. Uh, my one concern, or a couple concerns with Nick Smith Jr., shot selection, right? He's not a great rim pressure. He struggles to get all the way downhill. Uh, that's a product of his, uh, you know, slight frame, his lack of, you know, exceptional burst. So I think that's a big concern is just shot selection, team basketball, fully getting downhill, easy offense. Um, and then defense, man. This is a guy who's a, they say he's 185 pounds, man. I, I really wonder if he's even that dude. He's a slight, slight guy, so... If he's in your starting rotation, if he's a sixth man, which I think immediately he's a spark plug guy, comes off your bench, uh, you get him to run your second unit, give you some bench minutes, always going to be a guy that's going to get picked on defensively. Um, 
So those are my big concerns, but out of all those guys, I mean, he's got the most star traits, the most translatable skill set, uh, tight handle, good change in pace, and that soft, soft touch, man. Like I said, I am a sucker for, for good touch and a good floater game, and so that really sticks out for me. Um, I'm not completely sold on any of these three guys. I could see Lively being a, a great defender one day. Again, there's just a lot of red flags there for me, so... I'd probably go Nick Smith Jr., man. I think he can carve out a role either as a starting guard one day, but I think has a role as a six-man kind of spark plug, fill it up scorer off the bench uh, from day one. Yeah, I could definitely see him falling into that mold, which unfortunately is not the most valuable archetype, right? Like nobody really loves Jordan Clarkson all that much, but... Nick Smith Jr. does some stuff out there where it really elucidates why he was Ooh. the number one prospect. Like, yeah, you like that one? I do I like that one. I didn't like it as much as an Emmanuel quickly floater, though. <laughs> uh, he just has the look of a dynamic scoring guard when he's doing what he does well. The wiggle, the fluidity, the twitchiness, the hesitations, the overall handle, the shot making you mentioned, the touch. And then you see the more advanced stuff at times where you look at his pace out of the pick and roll, snaking, trapping defenders on his back. You like to see that. He has the playmaking moments. Defensively, has good length, gives good effort. I agree with you. His uh, sturdiness is going to be an issue. But, I mean, I do like some of the attributes there. It does feel like he may be a bit singularly dependent on his scoring where he was wildly inconsistent at Arkansas. Like game to game, he could give you zero or he could give you 25. So I view him as being like a just outside the lottery kind of guy. A couple spots ahead of Derek Lively II, who I also think can clearly carve out a role for himself more. Like maybe Nick Smith Jr. has the more impressive moments and the more aesthetically pleasing attributes. But I do sort of wonder if we're like headed towards a deficiency of just good rotational bigs. And this class, like there's two centers who are going to go in the first round potentially. And one of them is Victor Wembanyama, who's like nothing we've ever seen and Lively might be the other. So even though he has some issues and isn't the most developed, there is some really intriguing stuff. Like 7-1 with a 7-7 wingspan, elite size. He is a massive target in the dunker spot as a cutter out of pick and roll. Throw it up there. He can get it. He's got soft hands. He's got above average finishing touch. And he's pretty darn coordinated for that massive size. He was a 97th percentile roll man. And then you do see moments with him of like solid playmaking instincts. Again, I like his finishing touch. His shooting ability is not impressive right now. 60% from the line, 15% from deep, but it's something that he tries. I wouldn't bet on it being a plus trait of his, but I also wouldn't rule it out entirely. And then he has just this ridiculously high shot blocking ceiling, 2.4 blocks per game and 20 minutes per game. You see there the insane physical attributes, and I do agree he fouls too much, but I still think he has pretty good timing, sometimes pretty good verticality. And I think he can be like a versatile, switchable defensive player. So that rim running, rim protecting, great frame, soft touch, some defensive versatility, those are things that every NBA team values. It's just some of the other areas where he's lacking, like no post game to speak of at this point. Not a guy who embraces the physicality, the finishing in traffic side of the game. Like he's not super composed in those situations. And 
has this horrible habit of straight up passing up layups for tougher shots. Like he will have a guy beat, he'll have a step on him going left, and then he'll decide, oh, what if I turn back to the right and try to tough hook shot over him instead? Like he does that far too often. So I just think he's got a little bit of the deer in the headlights, gentle giant feel to him at times. And he's not a guy who possesses that higher level skill, but the physical attributes are insane. And the ability to just do those baseline things that make you rotation big. He definitely has those. And then when it comes to Whitehead, yeah, I just don't love the fact that he's not going to have that kind of two-way impact that a Lively the second would to me. Right now, I really just think his selling point is his shooting and sort of what he was as a high school prospect. So I would clearly have him third out of those three. And I also like Nick Smith the most. So there you have it, guys. Bunch of draft thoughts from us. We are going to be doing a full mock on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we're going to be live during the draft with none other than Colin Cowherd for the first pick. And Jason Timpf will be with us for the first few picks of that draft as well. So super pumped for that. Get your timer ready for the Nerd Sesh draft live stream on the Volume YouTube page, where if you are watching us now, It'd be great if you subscribed. If you enjoyed the content, you can also catch us across all audio platforms, Spotify, Apple, etc. You can follow us across social media, Instagram and TikTok at NerdSesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. And you can join our Discord if you just want to talk basketball, football with us whenever. That is at the link tree in any of our social media bios. And you can buy our merch on the volume store, hats, hoodies, shirts, nerd sesh flag, go get you some of that. It's pretty sweet. And we're super excited to have that out there for all you guys. So with that, as always, appreciate you. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 